this is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello, people. It's Ben here, and this is the final small voice podcast of 2020. As promised, it's going to be the year in review, as I have done for the previous past few years. I haven't written a script or anything, so you're just going to have to deal with that because I have no idea what I'm going to be saying. So I think the first thing I will say is that this episode of the podcast, like many, many others before it, is sponsored by the wonderful Charcoal Book Club. And they are wonderful, and I do love their continued support for this podcast. You might have heard Jesse Lenz from Charcoal Book Club on a few weeks ago, and um, well, we'll get to Jesse at the end of this episode because I'm going to include a few clips from each of my guests from this year. But uh, Charcoal Book Club, you've now missed the deadline to apply for the uh, Chico Hot Springs portfolio review that's going to be next March, which is obviously not happening in any physical way, but will be all done remotely. But nevertheless, uh, you can still sign up as a member of the Charcoal Book Club, the first and only Book of the Month club dedicated entirely to photo books. I'm trying to remember how the script goes. I'm not going to do the script. Um, I think me and Jesse have to figure out a new one for 2021. That might be a little New Year's resolution. But um, what can I tell you about Charcoal Book Club other than the fact that um, you get a brilliant selection curated by the good people of Charcoal themselves. I look forward to getting them 12 a year, one a month. What could be better? And it's a fantastic way of really looking at work that you wouldn't otherwise perhaps be exposed to because, you know, in a way, it's kind of a lucky dip and I love it for that because they're not always books that I necessarily would think to buy, but they're always books that I enjoy looking at and uh, that's kind of the fundamental reason behind the Charcoal Book Club. So sign up as a member. Um, uh, The... uh, See, the uh, ambulance turns up right on cue now every time. It's almost um, like I'm using some kind of uh, sound effects record as a background. Maybe I'm not really in Dalston in East London. Maybe I'm in uh, Kansas City or somewhere like that. You don't know, do you? We're at the end of uh, what's been really quite a year. And uh, I don't know if 2021's necessarily going to be any better at the moment. Um but let's just hope it is for at least for some of us. And if you've had a diabolically bad 2020, and if you've lost anyone to COVID or if you've been impacted in any really significant way by it, then please accept my commiserations for that. And um, I guess everyone can at least in some way uh, relate to that and have a great deal of sympathy, if not empathy, for that position. Um, a lot of us have been really hit hard financially in a business which is already being hit hard financially Uh, so of course that's been a massive concern for a lot of people and if you're in that category I hope that you know you've managed to find a way through it and uh, 
we'll continue to find a way through it into 2021 and beyond and um, come out the other side, hopefully. So this was the year that I launched the Small Voice Members Only podcast. Thank you so much for becoming members. You can all still become members if you're that way inclined. This is obviously an attempt for me after five years of doing this podcast to try and monetize it in some small way. It's a notoriously difficult thing to do to monetize a podcast. As you all know, there are about 50 bazillion podcasts out there now. And very few of them earn anyone any money at all, uh, apart from the absolute outliers in that equation. But um, I do have some members now, and I do get a little bit of sponsorship money from Charcoal Book Club. Hopefully I'll get a second sponsor in 2021. So if anyone is uh, interested in sponsoring the podcast or knows anyone who might sponsor the podcast, if you've got any contacts in any um, big uh, photographic organizations or companies, if you know anyone who works for Nikon or Fuji or Canon or Photoshop, Adobe, you know, or any of the um, wealthy uh, photographic organizations, um, then mention to them that I'm looking for a new sponsor to run alongside the good old Charcoal Book Club. And um, I'm looking for new members as well to the Members Only podcast because that allows me some small kind of financial remuneration for the amount of time and effort that it takes to put this free podcast out. So it's kind of, as I said before, kind of a freemium model. I normally at this point read some of the emails that I've received over the course of the year, mainly from people who just want to let me know that the podcast means a lot to them and they get a lot out of it and they enjoy it and they just let me know how much they like it and they, they're just phoning, uh, phoning, phoning, no one's ever phoning anymore, that doesn't really happen. But they're emailing and they're contacting me in one of the many ways one can contact someone just to say thank you for doing it and uh, let me know how much it means. And I, I don't know if I'm going to, I'm not going to do that this year and read those out. Maybe I should. And if you like that, each year, then let me know and I'll, I'll I'll bring it back next year. But this year, I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's just a bit too self-congratulatory or self-indulgent. I don't know. Uh, let me know if you like it when I read out the emails from people who've uh, written to let me know how much they enjoy the podcast. But um, I don't think I'll do that this year. Apart from anything else, I just don't think I've got the bandwidth for it. And... Um, I'm just happy to be able to at least bring you this. My first guest back in January of 2020, before COVID, before the whole world went to hell, um, was the lovely Amak Mahmoudian. Amak had just released her latest book, Zangir, and um, I think was launching it that very day. Well, that very evening at the Martin Parr Foundation in Bristol. She's based in that neck of the woods and teaches at the University of the West of England, UWE, which is where we sat in one of the classrooms and had this, this chat that um, you're going to hear a little clip from. Then the lovely Ellie Davis, who's an old friend of mine who we used to share an office and uh, was even my assistant at one point. We went on a few great adventures to some far-flung corners of the world, to uh, Rio de Janeiro and uh, Toronto and um, uh, London Town, of course, 
and uh, other places. Um, but um, yeah, that was ancient history. Ellie has since become very much a brilliant and uh, interesting photographer in her own right. And um, it was great to finally get her on. We've been talking about doing it for such a long time. And uh, she came to London to have a chat. Then I had the equally lovely Alice Tomlinson on, whose book Ex Voto had uh, just been published by Goss Books. We talked uh, extensively about that project uh, where she'd uh, gone to Lourdes to um, do some portraits of the pilgrims. And Alice has had quite a year since that, gone from strength to strength, recently won the Taylor Wessing Portrait Prize for uh, another project, also a portrait project, obviously, but another series of images that she took uh, in the wake of the COVID um, pandemic and the lockdown that ensued. So I think Alice has had a pretty good 2020 in terms of uh, photography and career. And then the lovely Michal Ivanovsky, um, forgot how to pronounce his surname. I'm sorry, Michal. God damn. Who spoke about um, some very long walks that he's been on? I cannot walk before having some connections with my project and having dreams about them and write about them and get ready for them. So each project is a chapter in my life band mm. there is nothing it never happened to me to think oh that's interesting i might go and work on that it might be interesting project or it never happened it's always a start from heart and i'm just thinking okay i'm going to work on that and it's a narrative of my own life mm. but at the same time because of the situation and the place which i am from i think this work become political in a sense or I can say it pertains to a wider social issue which is related to my country so I wanted to find a way of having a relationship with the landscape and the the way I've done that is to try and spend time in a place and have a process of making something within it because there's a for me, there's a, something that happens when I'm doing something with my hands or something creative where you're looking differently or thinking differently or utilising material around you and you're spending time there and there's also a kind of slowing down. You're occupying that space in a way and creating something, something temporary always. It was always only ever things that I would make within a day, photograph them, dismantle it take them away or whatever it was I was working on Um, and it just changes your experience of being there and the first thing I would normally do is just sit down well first of all I'd walk a lot and find places that seemed to work for the the idea that I had in mind and then when I get there I usually set up my tripod and move the camera around a bit and and then I just sit Mm. and try and I'd listen to the birds and yeah. know, get a sense of the space. <laughs> See, this is where it all gets very <laughs> idyllic. No, it doesn't sound ridiculous. It sounds, you know, beautiful and and like a wonderful, you know, thing to spend your time doing and very meditative. I suppose yeah. you, you must feel it it's somehow meditative. It definitely. I mean, I really love doing it. And I've had a period of time where I wasn't making any new work. And then recently 
<clears throat> I've been out several times a week and it's uh, it's just wonderful. I absolutely love it. And the, I love it more when I'm making something. So it's, it's just fine. enormously um, satisfying and exciting and fun. I just really enjoy it. I'd always had a curiosity about, you know, I'd always gone to churches, maybe been, well, been dragged around them on holiday or whatever, but never really understood people's faith or what happened there. And it wasn't something that was, wasn't discouraged, but it certainly wasn't part of my upbringing no. anyway. So I always had a slight fascination and curiosity about what drove people to be, to be religious, but also what it meant to be in these sacred spaces, really. So I saw this film and... Um, I just thought, wow, that looks so interesting. And obviously I did a lot of research before I went and there's been a lot of photographic projects about Lourdes before, you know, mm. certainly not been... But were there any particularly famous ones or, or ones that sort of um, well-known photographers have done? Because I, I, it's the sort of thing you imagine has been done to death, but then I can't necessarily think uh, of any particular, you know, projects that were done by high-profile Yeah, I mean, not probably people that are household names or whatever. Right. I mean, I think there was a... I think there was a Magnum photographer, though I don't remember his name now, I have to say, who did very black and white reportage ones. A lot of them were shot at night. They mm. were quite interesting. And then there were a lot of French photographers who'd spent a lot of time there who I think are quite known in French photography circles. Mm-hmm. But there hadn't been one major body of work by anyone very well known, but it had been documented. But the wider sort of project of pilgrimages and that kind of thing, you know, is definitely, yeah, something that, you know, yeah. someone like, yeah, like there, there are a number of photographers who explored that yeah theme. i mean like um marketa skakova who's mm. documented pilgrims um a lot of them in eastern europe for many years so it's not i mean it's not a new topic no, of course you know. not of course not um, but then I, nothing I is aware of, well nothing is and i just think with photography you know the truly original comes from the way you think about it mm-hmm. like you might have a great idea you'll find out someone has done something about that in some way probably course, yeah. <laughs> like it's kind of almost impossible to be completely original in terms of subject matter but i suppose it's how you you interpret it Mm. i feel very um, i don't know what is content that Mm. i have done this journey it was Mm. something i needed to do as a human and i felt really moved that i was uh i don't want to sound corny probably will sound very corny but there were times because you're walking alone for so long and it's a very boring process you know the trees just keep moving it's like a metronome Mm. pine tree pine tree pine tree pine tree at some point you just don't even know what day it is and at those points when your your perception of reality and signifiers of times and place are not there you you go into a bit of a trance and you travel in time. Mm. And I would look at places think, and I would feel the presence of, you know, of all the people who died there. My grandfather was, maybe I wanted to feel that, you know. Mm. You come up with, uh, with companions when you're on your own for such a long time. And it was very profound, super mundane and, I mean, simple, but it felt profound. And I, I, I have taken that away from this project as something I did absolutely for myself, but I also know it resonates with... Most, mostly everybody, because yeah. this is such a universal um, experience, right? So yeah, that was that was the feeling. I would say. I was wondering if you know, kind of, on a kind of more mundane level, it's you focusing entirely on just moving and shooting and moving and shooting. Did it, you know, really kind of did it move your photography along? Because you're saying this is the first thing you did after your MA. Uh, that's quite an intensive period over which you're trying to shoot you know i guess more or less every day yes 
Um, did it did it have that effect? Absolutely. The the most wonderful uh, part of this process was me managing expectations of my photography, me coming down, and me actually taking a break from wanting something spectacular. I don't know what it was about me when I started doing my masters. I I thought photography had to be loud. It had to be like you know David LaChapelle kind mm. of uh, loud. Don't know why that, that, that was on my mind, and I thought that this is the kind of work I would be making, and the kind of work that I made. I don't know previously, I would say this is the most boring thing I have ever seen in my life. But for me to arrive at the point when I look at these images now and I feel depth and some sort of profoundness in them, that's that's what I found was mm. the biggest achievement for me as a photographer to actually appreciate the magic in the mundane. And the simplicity, not trying to to make a show and not trying to be loud and and asking for attention. That was wonderful. Next up was Tom Oldham. I had a great chat with Tom at his place, not that far from where I live in Hackney. And um, it's great to get him on. What a lovely bloke he is and a great photographer. Then me again. Uh, This time um, I was very flattered to be asked by Baroness Pirello of uh, the podcast The Candid Frame, uh, to whom I owe a debt, really, because uh, as I said fairly extensively, um, you know, it's kind of his podcast that inspired me to do this one. Uh, He's been at it for a very long time, and he's a brilliant interviewer, and uh, what a great pleasure it was to bang on about myself with uh, Baroness. After that, in April, on the 1st of April, uh, John Tonks. And uh, at this point, of course, we were all talking about nothing but COVID because um, we were right in it at that point. And um, John had just come off the same cruise ship that I had been on uh, months before the previous um, summer. And uh, John talked about his, his adventures uh, off around the uh, the world, um, going to some very uh, underexplored corners. And then the brilliant Ken Grant was my first sort of uh, remote one, I think. No, John was my first remote one. Uh, and then Ken. So, yeah, that was where it started to go completely um, remote on the grounds that um, we were locked down. It comes to a sort of larger point, I suppose, about really believing in your own work and that none of it actually really matters mm. that much. Mm. And who really cares? And everyone's so rightfully or wrongly self-absorbed anyway. What does it matter if I'm having a wobble and a doubt about what I feel about something? You know, really, what does it matter? So surely it's more advantageous just to get the fuck on with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. <clears throat> but what, what do you think, what is it about this project that's kind of, that makes you feel so... I mean, maybe you've already answered it. I don't know, but I'm just thinking that, you know, yeah, it's one way of answering it. But is it that you just feel like you've executed it really well? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was. It's a very straightforward proposition. And it's shining a light on beautiful people that maybe don't have enough understanding. And, and, and I just feel ethically it's spot on. Uh, aesthetically, I've nailed it. And I can't wait to throw it out into the world and and mm. allow people a little more understanding maybe i don't know if yeah, that yeah. sounds sort of 
no. righteous. I hope not, but it just... It, no, it sounds exactly like it, you know, one would expect it to sound when you're talking about a personal project that, you yeah. know, I kind of care about. And yeah. that you stumbled upon um, by kind of luck and then yeah. went and did. What was really kind of interesting about both of our experiences, and I thought it would be really helpful for people to, to, to hear about it, is just the fact that even though you are going through those moments of, you know, depression, whether it's clinical or not, and self-doubt, anxiety, uh, insecurity, that we both managed to move forward in an area that we had a passion and an interest for. And I think so many people don't even get that far because despite the fact that, you know, we were struggling with that stuff and we sometimes, you know, or oftentimes have regretted our choices, we were nevertheless both sort of making progress in the areas in which we wanted to, right? Where other people don't even hmm. get that far. They allow the voices in their head and the feelings that they're having to completely stop them. And they just simply give up and they, and they, you know, take on something else that's safer and doesn't involve as, as much risk or what they conceive as risk. And it was really interesting hearing your story that, um, how analogous that was to you and me. Cause I can certainly look back and, and think that, oh, if I'd done this, if I could have done that, I could have gotten so much further. But, you know, I think I too easily discounted the fact that I was nevertheless making some sort of progress and that I was still staying on point, even though I was, you know, my road, if I had outlined it, was incredibly zigzaggy. Yeah. But I think I, I was sort of mistaken in the idea that there was a straight line to be had in the first place. Mm. I mean, I see, I feel like I've been very sort of two steps forward, one step back, really, the whole time you know, that your progress is going to be relatively slow if that's the case, you know, uh, mm -hmm. if you're comparing yourself to people who confidently march forward, you know, having had the benefit of, um, I don't know, supportive parents and uh, a good education and, and all those other um, factors. And then there are those of us who just find it much more of a challenge, really. And, you know, that's often about whatever you're telling yourself in your head about who you are and what you are, unfortunately, you know, so much of it is down to that. I mean, we could, yeah, we could talk forever about it, but um, I definitely feel like I got into photography relatively late. I was 30. So my whole of my twenties, really, I kind of slept walked through that mm -hmm. uh, in a state of kind of, I, I don't even know a kind of inertia really and a kind of low level unhappiness and also a, quite a lot of depression, which I'd had really since I was a kid, but I had a lovely girlfriend throughout that whole period. So life kind of seemed, you know, on the face of it, reasonably okay. And obviously you can get away with not having any money when you're young, which, you know, starts to um, become a bit less uh, rock and roll by the time you get to a certain point. But yeah, photography came along Although I'd had an interest in it as a kid, it, it didn't resurface in my life until I was, like I say, at the end, tail end of my thirties. And yeah, I guess I have, I did manage to kind of make progress, as I say, albeit in a very kind of dysfunctional and, uh, like you say, zigzaggy way. I think that disconnect is quite lovely. And I, you know, I, you certainly start to uh, appreciate different things when you go out to these places and I don't know, it's, it's all probably going to start sounding really cliche, but 
I, I think you know for example when you leave cape town and um you could you know so you'd fly down to cape town at the, at the time so when i was going to somewhere like st helena you'd have to get the ship up from from down there uh now they've got an airport that uh on, on st helena so you can fly but anyway so you'd sit on this ship and it would sail away and you just watch your phone signal die and then it would go. And I always kind of found it this lovely breath of fresh air. It was like, oh, great. Mm. You know, it was like, uh, I really liked it, you know, and, and that idea of um, you can't use that anymore. You know, mm. I, sort of, I do find it. Um, I, I have found before I was going away on the cruise this time, I was actually getting something known as trigger, uh, trigger thumb. Which is like uh, my thumb cracks when I bend it, and it's from using your bloody phone all the time. Right, right, yeah. Um, you know, and, and so that that disconnect is lovely, and it, it kind of I think when you go somewhere with the intention of making work, and you've got these parameters, you know, which would be in this case the sea around the around the island you're on, um, it kind of gives you these limitations, and it kind of helps me to uh, be more creative. I think. Mm. you know it's it's a bit like when people say just stick with one camera and one uh you know one body and one lens or what have you you know those limitations make you more creative i think there'd be three week blocks where i'd, I'd be maybe sh- sometimes more where i'd be photographing and then go back and I'd process everything look at it carefully and there's something about that distance you know i think sometimes you can be snow blind if you're right in the middle of things and i've always tossed and turned about exactly what that is and, and how that works, you know, because I love the the fact that you're completely immersed in something and I, and I feel that's absolutely necessary, but the, the breathing space is important uh, as well, just to get out of it, you know. Um, I couldn't pull a quote off the shelf right now, but Fl- Flannery O'Connor, when, when she was writing, there's a, a really great phrase in Mystery and Manners about being part of that world, but also having a certain kind of exile or perspective on that world that that making work about it affords you and and i kind of understood that by going back because you just breathe slightly differently and you can spend a bit more time thinking and then you can also clarify what you're going to do and you feel something if it's far away it's probably it's probably a really you know stupid thing to say but you know when i listen to the football differently when i'm in a different part of the world because you're connecting with home in a slightly different way and you're feeling that and you can hear it. You almost hear it in a slightly different way. After Ken, Tom Craig, who was really engaging and interesting and um, just gave it lots. Um, it was kind of indicative of Tom's personality. He really doesn't do things by halves, which is why he's such an incredibly uh, good and um, successful photographer. Then I bagged the uh, brilliant um, and uh, extremely highly esteemed Roger Ballon. Um, just emailed Roger and um, didn't particularly expect to get um, a result, but he did get straight back to me and said, yeah, all right. So we did it. Then I had the fantastic Phil Toledano on. I've been wanting to have Phil on for so long. And, you know, as I said at the time, I think it was the fact that we were s- suddenly doing them remotely that I had this opportunity 
to get him and, and anyone else on at that point because I'd always done the face-to-face. I thought, oh, next time I'm in New York, I've got to see if he'll do it. But we were able to do it online. And the first one went completely pear-shaped because of my broadband connection being so appalling that we had to literally abandon it. And that was just so depressing. I was like, couldn't believe it really. But Phil was a total trooper and he just, uh, you know, quite happy to try again and we got it done. And then the brilliant Barry Lewis, who was full of anecdotes and interesting stories. And and I think, in fact, he was invited onto another podcast subsequent to our conversation because um, they heard him talking and was like, oh, we just want more of this. So they got him on to talk more and give him more of those sorts of uh, great stories that he was giving me. But I enjoyed talking to Barry a lot. I think that we often forget how amazing this bug is if you're into photography you're really into it and you love it and you love the individuals that are involved in it and if you've got that quite inexplicable attraction to photography and photographs then aren't we lucky Mm. because there are these incredible men and women that have taken remarkable bodies of work and generally speaking each of them are stamped with their own incredible sense of individualism and i'm just literally picking names off the top of my head but rinko koichi martin parr joseph kidalka irvin penn david la chapelle when i hear those names and i think about them they're just the work is so incredibly different and diverse, mm. but each of the bodies of work are unique to that individual. And I think that's fascinating. And I think that's engaging. And I think it's powerful. And I think if anyone starting in photography can consider that first and not be debilitated by the fact that it cannot happen overnight but it can happen over a period of time and it can give you great pleasure and satisfaction to have a working life in photography and ultimately to build up a a body of work that then can be a representation of who you are as an individual, Mm. then what a gift. I think it's an amazing challenge and a gift and it's the most complicated padlock anyone could wish to try to unpick but unpicking it is just part of the fun i wondered if you could talk a little bit about your relationship to some of the the people who have appeared you know the subjects of your images because there's been accusations of exploitation and coercion and manipulation i'm wondering what your response to those kind of accusations is well this is easy i mean you know firstly anybody accuses me of that usually has their own psychological issues, you know. So it usually has something to do with that the pictures get gotten inside them and, and they don't like the, 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 what those pictures are doing psychologically to them because they haven't resolved the things that go on in their own mind because they have no idea of, of anything about what I do. So how can they accuse me of anything? Why don't they turn on the BBC and, and look and see what the BBC does every night, day after day after day for the last decades in terms of how it, make sure it gets news through so-called pervasive means. So, you know, the real reason is that the pictures are strong. They get in people's psyche and people, and they make 
people deal with chaos that they don't can't deal with. That's the reason for those accusations, and I'll put my head on the block. Now, if the reality is, is I never had a, a bad experience with anybody in my career. I, people actually love me. I'm like I'm a father, a rabbi, a priest, a businessman, a food provider, a doctor, a psychiatrist, a friend, a neighbor. I don't know what I am, but boy, you know, I get endless, endless all day it goes on for, from people that I met 30, 20, 10 years ago. You know, people like me, they, there's no way. This is what people can't understand. You don't get these type of pictures year after year after year in these type of places unless the people like you. Mm. You said at one moment that you was you felt kind of constrained, uh, that you know you weren't sort of going far out there enough, which you know by some people's standards would be surprising. Um, but do, I mean, do you still feel that to some extent? Always. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because sometimes you know I look at some artists' work and I go, God, that's how do they get there? Because like I said, I always feel like my ideas are so obvious; they're just sort of a step in front of me. Whereas mm-hmm. you look at some people and they go, God, that's you know how did they? Like, what bus do they have to catch to get to that planet? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I find that admirable, and I'm sort of jealous that I, I'm not going that far. I'm not being extreme enough. But, you know, you can't prescribe extremity. If that no. You, you, can't, yeah, exactly. you can't say, you can't look at an idea and go, okay, I'm going to make it 53% more extreme, because that's just bullshit. Another thing you said was, was about, um, you know, when it comes to sort of photographing people, most of the time people don't mind being photographed if you have a certainty and a conviction that what you're doing matters uh, and i really liked that, I feel that do really you still strongly. feel you yeah, still feel, feel that, that way really strongly because if you haven't got if you go up to someone so forget photography if you go up to a stranger and say can i talk to you they'll kind of shrink back especially now but if you say can i take your picture they'll immediately you've started a conversation they'll be curious what why mm. you know what I'm, and you say because you've got to have a you've got you've got to have something to reply to that mm. because I like your eyelashes because you 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 know you look great I'm interested in I used to live here I can there's you, you've got to know the next line to to open up the conversation most mm-hmm. people often I think photographers put we put our own barriers as reasons not to take a picture oh they wouldn't like that or there's reason where most people are quite happy. It's often we're the ones that stop ourselves. Mm. And I think that's something I've, I've, I've learned. But you need to have a, you need to have researched it a bit and you need to have belief in yourself. Yeah. And it's not, it, sometimes it's really hard. You go up to a stranger, you, you go out on the street, you go up to a stranger, you, you take a few shots and then you kind of catch their eye. You both know they've taken. And then you you start try to start a conversation. If it goes bad at the beginning, it's very hard to, to go to back. the next yeah. one. You know, you, often it's best to go home after <laughs> right, after right, that. Yeah. Next up is Jodie Bieber, who again I was delighted to be able to talk to. I've been admiring her work as someone who loved photojournalism for so many years for, uh, for a long time and it was great to get her on Sabia Chimen is a young Turkish photographer um, currently a Magnum Photos nominee ha- had a huge amount of recognition for this one particular story that she's done called Haviz Guardians of the Quran 
and um, it was nice to hear from Sabia. And then Tasni Mal Sultan, uh, it was brilliant, and um, talked really kind of candidly about uh, some personal stuff and uh, how that all played into the work that she's been doing. And then Stephen Dupont, absolutely brilliant to get him on. Uh, same as um, Jody in a way, you know, I've loved his work for so long. Still got his book about the Indian uh, steam railways on my shelves. Uh, one of the first photo books I bought probably from back in the day. And um, Stephen's a great person to hear from. And uh, it was great to get him on. I have 10 World Press Awards. Mm. It was the direction that I was in, and I absolutely um, feel so blessed and privileged to have traveled to 53 countries or however, like around there, and worked in so many different countries. I mean, that was my university. But then Mm. I started to see that assignments were becoming shorter and I was starting to feel specifically in South Africa that there are agendas in the world and in the media and the world is much bigger or your country is much bigger. And I took it personally when I felt a journalist who was flying in was covering something in such a black and white way with no nuance or the grayness in between. And for me, it felt like my responsibility as a photographer that when I'm shooting a project with a publication and it's coming from, for example, Europe, and that is published in the context to that position the European publication takes, I am responsible that if it's not correct or it's a bias for a specific agenda, those people reading it generally believe what they read. And I didn't want to be responsible for people not wanting to come to South Africa because of the skewed journalism. Because Mm -hmm. who does it impact? The journalist goes off back home. I continue with my projects, doing other stuff, but it impacts the people on the ground. And that became something very important for me. And hence I started like questioning being in that environment. For me, photography, like as I did in Kronstukos project also, I don't want to be interested in there my subject's life. They're becoming my part of my life, which I really need. I like it. It gives me a rich society. I, I'm feeding myself with them. So I am one of them, mm. I feel like. So yeah. the refugee, both refugee project, both the Scrum Schools project, most of the girls still in my life, still we are very connected. Even this weekend, we spent time with the five girls together. So yeah, this is my so you, working. Stop. You don't. You don't want to be this kind of photographer who just is, is a sort of mm-hmm. passing uh, character, yes. you know, yeah. and then yeah, and then mm-hmm. has nothing more to do with those people. Yes, really. I try to fix it. Like I basically try to fix the marriage that I knew wasn't really working out, but 
again, I'm struggling as a 17 year old at this point to kind of fix something that I didn't want my parents to know that I failed in and my whole family and society is um, on a grander scale. So um, I think as a teenager, you're doing this, but at the same time, I had two kids. I'm doing my master's. So I got that when I was 21. I'm living abroad and I'm, I'm failing in my marriage, but I'm, I kind of refuse to fail. So I, I try uh, marriage counseling, therapy, everything. My parents don't accept because they don't want me to divorce. And then what if, you know, what will people say? And your daughters, you'll lose, what's the word? Guardianship of my daughters, mm. which is usual. So a lot of things kind of happen to stop me from getting divorced. But in the end, ultimately, 10 years later, finally, my ex-husband agrees and, um, divorces and yeah that was 2013 so my life has been very mm. different since but um i don't regret that the photographs are easy processing the emotion is the hard thing you know when i when i when and it's when you look at those photographs after when you come back and you, you you're, you're going over the contact sheets with a loop and you're reliving it because when you're there it, it's it's kind of it's just happening and you're dealing with it and you're putting it aside, the emotional side. But when you come back and you're in a quiet, normal environment, like when I was living in London, I'd come back and I'd process the Rwanda pictures, for example, and I'd start to see them and I'd break down. I would be in tears. I, I just could not believe what I'd actually been through and seen. But while I was in Rwanda, none of that was happening. I was on adrenaline. I was on a drive. I was like... Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you're trying to survive and you, you're trying to just take these photographs, which you know are incredibly important because you're there and this is a big story and this you know that there's something, you know, you know that this needs to be documented. You know, you know that this is history. But when you get back, you then you then fall apart. I mean, it's 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 but it's something you just have to deal with i mean it's something i think everyone mm -hmm. deals with it differently um it you know i've 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 i to be honest i feel quite fortunate in that i feel that um i've learned to deal with all of this trauma quite well and in and i see the world as um the reality of what it is and, and in fact i feel quite blessed i feel quite um humbled by it what I've seen because it's far worse to be the person in front of the camera than it is to be me. I'm just there as a witness. I'm there, there as an observer and, you know, um, you know, I'm just, I'm there to take the photographs. I'm, I'm, you know, what I've seen and what's in front of the camera is often, that's the horror show. I'm, I'm, I don't, I have no right to feel anything except to understand that this is the world we live in and that's the reality. So I've coped with it. I've coped with it quite well. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I have any serious issues. I mean, maybe I'm no. wrong. Maybe I'm just as mad as everyone else, but I've always been mad anyway. And then Tim Page, no less. Wow. What, what a treat that was to get Tim on. His reputation precedes him, obviously. I think it was talking to Stephen that that kind of instigated all that because they they know each other obviously. Uh, Tim now based in Australia, same as Stephen, and um, they're friends. And I don't know. It just it suddenly occurred to me that after all these years, 
of doing this podcast that it was crazy not to try and talk to Tim. Then I spoke to Andy Sewell just up the road from where I live in his office, socially distanced, but at least we were face to face for once. Talked about Andy's new book, Known and Strange Things Past. Then Alethea Casey was my guest. And um, obviously, well, I'm very biased about that one. But I, I thought she was really good and I uh, enjoyed talking with her in her own kitchen. And um, Jesse Lenz, of course, the aforementioned of Charcoal Book Club, talked to me about his book, The Locusts. And I've said it before, but I love to listen to Jesse. I love the way he talks and I love the uh, way he kind of approaches life. So I um, enjoyed that one a great deal. Michael Christopher Brown. Um, that one was kind of dark because Michael's had a right time of it um since i guess 2011 really when he was very nearly killed in the same uh, mortar attack which did kill sadly uh, tim hethington and chris hondras and also injured guy martin also previously of this parish michael talked uh, very openly and honestly about his experience of having ptsd among many other things and then to End the year, a couple of weeks ago, the esteemed British photojournalist Tom Stoddart, of course, was uh, sort of celebrating his 50 years in the business, really. And uh, he also brought a book out recently called Extraordinary Women, kind of partly to mark that anniversary. So great to finally get Tom on. I think you're too busy. You're too busy surviving is necessarily the right word. Figuring out what is going to happen, the possibilities, who is who, what's going to do, and then you see somebody here, and that makes that change. And you're too busy playing a very, very high-speed chess game. And somewhere in the middle of this high-speed chess game, you've got to knock off a few frames. And your raison d'etre, you're not there to operate a radio or a machine gun or, or be a medic, you're there to document. And the first few times I went out, I didn't do a good job. I I mean, I watched Eddie Adams take a picture of some guy getting knifed in the gut, tortured, and I stood there frozen, couldn't make the image. And I got a rocket the next day in my pigeonhole. You know, AP got a picture. You, Where's your picture? Mm. And so you stop dicking about and saying, well, I mustn't upset or I mustn't be pushy. You know, like you, the guy screaming his heart out because he's lost his legs. Keep shooting because that's the image that's going to make a difference. You know, one of the things that kind of underlies all my work, or one of the things that kind of underlies my work, I suppose, one of the things I'm kind of interested in is the way that that kind of things are always so much more kind of complex and specific than our ideas of them. Um, you know, they always kind of exceed the the kind of labels, the categories, the kind of boundaries that we we sort of put around things. Um, and uh, I guess one of the you know one of the reasons that I love walking around with a, a camera is that it allows me to kind of let go of some of my assumptions I suppose about what some of my ideas about what will be in front of me what you know what's in a particular place and actually kind of notice what's there um 
it's something that's kind of hard to talk about <laughs> without yeah. sounding really like stupidly simplistic or like kind of off the chart sort of esoteric but um i don't know ever since i've been a kid like there's there's it's that's something i've been really absorbed by this thing of just just uh, yeah becoming aware of, of what's you know what's here like this mo in this moment with this microphone sitting on this table in this space mm. um I'm not attending to any of that at all at the moment because I'm trying to put these sentences together yeah. and trying to, but like, um, yeah, I think that just letting your, your attention, like letting yourself notice um, what's in, in front of you is, or letting myself notice what's in front of me is, um, yeah, this thing that I find like really absorbing and quite strange, quite like it's quite, there's quite a specific, it's quite, a, it's quite a strange and specific feeling and, um, I think it, you know, it comes from in a way this realization. I think that what's there is always like so full of complexity and detail. You know, you you look closer in this kind of ocean of interconnection and contingency and um, complexity kind of opens up. You have a particular vision of the people you love, and you want to somehow grasp that you want to capture that and you have a very specific idea of who that person is and what you want them to be and look like and that's very much your perception of who they are it's perhaps not even rooted in reality and they also give you what they want to give you as they do as a member of the family because we all kind of have these roles I guess that we fit into through through our upbringing through a lifetime with each other and it's incredibly hard to get a portrait of someone you love that that is I suppose what you want and then the hardest thing of all is editing those images I almost feel where we're not the best people to edit the images of people we love mm. it's so hard to tell if an image is any good because it's really good or because it's of of someone you love um, and so my my mother is incredibly patient and so I spent a long time photographing her and it took quite a while to get a good image of her. Yeah, so you were on this mission to get a good image, get yeah. one good image of your mum. Yeah. And, and um, well, I, I, I would say you have certainly achieved that. You've got many, um, but uh, yeah, it took a while to get that one, didn't it? It took a while and actually my, my beautiful dad, who is such a wonderful man and he... He, I also, I practiced on him, if you like, because the other beautiful thing about certain people, and my dad falls into this category, that he really doesn't care what he looks like in the image. And that's wonderful because most people have an element of self-consciousness that they really care if they look old or they really care if they don't look beautiful. And my dad has none of that. Mm. And so he was, and still is, one of the most perfect people to photograph because he's just him. He's just him standing there in front of the camera giving you himself. He's not trying to present a particular side. He's literally just there as support. And that, and so I started to include him in the in this series and then I started to extend it out to my nieces and I started to photograph my brother and sister as well. So it's, it's about exploring who I am, I suppose, as a grown adult with my own child in relation to my family. And I suppose I should go back to your original question just quickly about the loss of self. I suppose this was a way of finding myself again. And I think that photography really did that. It 
brought me into the present because the beautiful thing about photography is that when you're photographing, you're not living in the past, which can be associated, I think, with depression. You're not living in the future or projecting into the future, which can bring anxiety. You're exactly in the moment. And photographing with my family in this way brought me into the present and kept me there. And so I think I felt like I found myself again through doing that because I was present and I was creating that energy by the production of work I was making. And when you're physically making, you're creating that energy Mm. and therefore you're being in that moment, which is really all we have. I was just kind of dropping my family off somewhere then running away for like a week or two and like immersing myself. And when I was doing the story, I wanted to be home with my family. And when I was with my family, I wanted to be, you know, working on the story. And it was like, it was just really frustrating. Um, It was also worse because I was like leaving them in the middle of like a trailer park in the Mojave Desert to like go hang out with like some crazy drug addict, like living in like a teepee in the middle of the desert. You know, it was just like, just wasn't, it did not feel good. And when we moved here, I was really dealing with that because I felt pretty trapped now still doing some stuff like John Levin and I, we were, we were traveling in Newfoundland quite a bit and photographing, but at a certain point, um, I was just kind of shooting, you know, some of my kids here and, um, John saw some of the negatives and he was like, why, why are you trying to do what I'm doing? Which is like running around doing stuff. I don't have a family. You have some of the best subject matter right in front of you and you're ignoring it. Like, wake up, man. Like this is your subject matter. Like you might not want to do it right now, but like you're playing a hand you don't have. And like having that really kind of like hard response and like that was like right around the time that like I, I, I had first taken kind of like the first image that ended up in the book that like I really realized like wow there's something to this um, and that was kind of like a turning point for me realizing like wow I can actually make the kind of work that I visually want to be making and that feels like it's like hitting the right um, overall feeling but like i can i can do it here you know again because i was outside myself and things would happen and i would be told that i did this and i did this and i would just apologize i would say oh but i no look i'm sorry you know i didn't understand but then it would happen again because i didn't realize what i was really doing um, because of the trauma, because when you have heavy trauma, it's, it keeps you in the past. You know, anxiety is about the future. Trauma is about the past. And it's, I, uh, I mean, it was really like five years at four or five years after Libya that it really began to hit. So around 2015, wow. 2016, hmm. And so, yeah, it, it's, um, my, my career began to sort of nosedive and after Magnum and then my, my partner, Lauren, um, she nearly left me because we had moved in together and she began to notice things. And I said, what do you mean? I don't understand what you're talking about. And she's like, oh, well, do you know that you do this? That, you know, it was kind of a Jekyll and Hyde scenario. Right. And I had no idea. So 
so I, so I went to see um, a couple, a couple counselors and, you know, they both said that I, that I was having symptoms of the PTSD. I didn't have the nightmares, but I had, um, many of the other symptoms. And so that's when I began getting treatment. It's tough now for, for, um, for young guys, but you know, why should it be easy? You know, that's, that's my reply. And when they say, Oh, can't afford this and can't do that. Well, you know, my reply is, um, your poverty is your best weapon because you make pictures when you're hungry, you know, photojournalism is tough. And um, you're only going to do it if you're completely committed to it. And um, so, you know, it's better to be um, a starving photojournalist who has to work and get out there than some person who spends literally $50,000 at the ICP and who's got a parent who is going to foot the bill for that. And that's your lot. So thank you so much for listening if you have been. I hope you enjoyed that little reminder of who we had on going to have some great chats coming in 2021 i hope i've got a couple in the can for the new year um shall i tell you who no i think i'll make you wait for that but i've got a couple in the can for the new year and um you know hopefully there'll be many many interesting chats to come with uh, hopefully a broad spectrum of great photographers speaking of which there is one final person i want to leave you with before we go and we lost him this year, unfortunately, and that is the great Chris Killip. I spoke to him not this year, but several years ago, and it still remains a highlight for me uh, on this podcast. He was absolutely delightful and charming. Uh, it was a thrill to have him on. I've said it before. I'll probably say it again, but Chris died this year, and um, I think he's going to be sorely missed by all the people who knew him and loved him. What a great photographer he was. Have a great 2021. I'm going to leave you with Chris Killip. It must have been so exciting because you were, you know, let's talk about the swinging 60s. I mean, you were right oh, in yeah. the middle of it. Patty Boyd was sitting there one night. We were doing an advert for Chris. She said, hey, can my boyfriend come? And he's, we're, we're, he's been sitting in the car for an hour. So I said, yeah. I said, Chris, could we have a minute to get him a cup of tea? So I ran out and knocked on this door of a Mini Cooper. It was George Harrison. Oh, George, yeah. you want a cup of tea? Do you want to come in? <laughs> yeah. 